Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Man, you can't help but tap your foot at that one. That's, that's, a, that's rolling. Good morning. Hello, Orchards. It's good to be with you all. My name is Andrew. I'm the student ministries pastor here. Welcome. It's good to see you all. I wanted to say something just for a second. Um, in the wake of the decision that happened on Friday, I want us to continue to be praying that God will do incredible things and do an incredible work protecting all lives. Those that are unborn, those that are living now, all lives. And I think that should be our prayer as we are looking forward, as God continues to work and move, that he will, he will do an incredible work, um, and that we will honor him and glorify him with everything we have. With that being said, uh, today we are back in our series in the book of Luke. Last week for Father's Day, we briefly stepped out of the book of Luke to look at Jesus' call the book of Matthew, for believers to deny ourselves. We were challenged to evaluate our life to find what areas we needed to remove and deny ourselves from so as to make more room for God. I truly hope and pray for those who took that time to evaluate your life, that, that you were encouraged, convicted, and challenged that you found or, or looked through your life and found areas or idols, as we talked about in your life, that you could remove and put God back on the throne of your life. I hope and pray that that was, that was a time that, that you took advantage of and that God did work in your life with that. Now this week we're moving back um, forward in the book of Luke. And so we are finishing out Luke chapter 22 today. So if you have your Bibles, please join me in Luke 22, verse 63. As you're turning there, Luke 22, verse 63, let, us, let me remind us of what's happened in the last several weeks leading up to this week. After the Passover meal celebration in the upper room, Jesus and his disciples go to the Mount of Olives so that Jesus can pray. There, Jesus prays and his disciples sleep. If you remember, Jesus came before the Father and asked if this cup could be removed from him. But Jesus made it clear that it wasn't his will, but God's will that would be done. After Jesus finished praying, Judas and the Pharisees showed up to arrest Jesus. Judas greets Jesus with a kiss and Jesus is arrested. We see the fisticuffs that happened. And immediately following Jesus' arrest, Jesus is led away to be tried. All the disciples flee, but Peter followed Jesus and watched from a distance. Pastor Breton talked about how Peter then denied being a follower of Jesus three times when he was questioned. After Peter denied Jesus, Peter went away and wept bitterly for his moral failure, which drops us right into our text today. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along as we read Luke 22, verse 63. I'll read it for us. It'll be up on the screen as well if you don't have your Bible. Luke 22, verse 63 says this. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. 
They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and led them away to their, their council, excuse me, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if, you, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? He said to them, you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now today, as we look at our passage, I want to say that this is kind of a, an interesting and maybe a little tough passage. It's, it's easy for us to view this passage as a transitional passage. It feels like a passage that's just there to move the narrative along. As well as since we know the ending of the story, right? We as believers can move rather quickly through passages like this because we just want to get to the story of the cross. We want to get to the part that our very salvation hinges upon. But as we will see, such a passage like this can seem at face value less important, but it's still vital to the text. It must be studied to see what God has to teach us. I challenge all of us to view the entire Bible as worth taking our time to read and study. Even passages that at face value seem less important than the big famous passages. I truly challenge us to seek with our whole heart that every single piece of scripture is there to grow us and to change us. I love how Paul in the book of 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 makes it clear that all scripture is breathed out by God. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's the foundation that we have with Scripture. So as we study our passage today, the main idea is that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. When we look at all the accounts in all four Gospels, we see that after Jesus was arrested... He was first led to Annas, who was the former high priest and still had significant power over the Jews. The religious leaders brought Jesus before Annas because they wanted him to question and try Jesus before they led Jesus before the current high priest. After Annas, Jesus was then led before Caiaphas, who was Annas' son and the current high priest. However, these trials were in fact illegitimate because based on the Jewish law at the time, It was illegal to conduct any sort of trial at night, much less give a verdict at night. Such trials were supposed to be conducted during the day. But the Sanhedrin, which was the combination of all the Jewish lawmakers together, were in such a rush to convict and try to kill Jesus that they blew past all of their own laws. Possibly in an effort to keep under wraps what they were doing, maybe to keep it hidden from Jesus' followers for a time. We're not sure, but they were in such a rush, they blew past. They held two different trials at night with members of the Sanhedrin in front of the former high priest and then the current high priest. The other gospels tell us they brought forward false witnesses 
that made up claims about Jesus or even twisted his words trying to build a case to convict him. We'll talk about why they were trying to convict Jesus, what they were trying to convict him about here in a minute. But what the Pharisees were trying to do was kind of the idea of throwing mud at a wall and trying to see if anything stuck. As we see in verse 63, as they waited for the sun to rise and the day to begin, they held Jesus in custody. The Bible tells us they beat Jesus repeatedly and then blindfolded him. As they beat him and struck him, they mocked him and demanded him to prophesy who hit him. They're trying to mock the fact that Jesus was being accused of being the Messiah, the Son of God. They were saying that if Jesus was truly the Messiah, then he could predict who was, and, and tell them who was beating him without seeing. A cruel joke. You will see as we continue to look at Jesus' road to the cross, this was just the beginning of the beating and suffering that Jesus would endure as he headed to the cross. After this beating in verse 66, the sun has risen and the day began. It was barely dawn, but the Jewish leaders had already called together the entire Sanhedrin, again, the entire body of lawmakers, for another trial of Jesus. This daytime trial in front of the entire Sanhedrin was effectively an exact replica of both nighttime trials. But it was done again so as to come in line with the law. As we mentioned, it was illegal to do trials at night. They were trying to bring legitimacy to the trials and the unofficial decisions that were made at night. So in verse 66, Luke tells us that Jesus was led before the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, the complete Sanhedrin, Jesus was led before them for this trial, even though many of the members in attendance that morning had already been at the trials during the night. But they had to make it appear legal. They stand Jesus before them to be questioned. They ask Jesus in verse 67, if you are the Christ, then tell us. Their question can be seen as them asking, are you the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for? which Jesus can answer yes and no. But he doesn't give them a direct answer, as we will see in a second, because they won't understand. This is because Jesus is the Messiah that is foretold in the Old Testament, but he's not the type of Messiah that Israel thought they were waiting for. You see, by the time Jesus got on the scene, Israel had been a political football bounced around between the conquering nations wanting to have control of the vital trade routes which Israel was in the middle of. So when Jesus came and claimed to be the Messiah, Israel was crying out for a Messiah to ride in on a white horse, to be a conquering king, to rescue them from their captors, to, to save them from the Romans who were ruling at that time, to save them and to give them hope. But Jesus isn't that kind of Messiah. He is Israel and our Savior, but he didn't come just to save Israel from their captors. He came to save them from their captivity to sin. As well as Jesus didn't look like the conquering king Messiah they thought would come in. You see, many Jews thought the Messiah would be a great military warrior who would drive the Romans out of Israel. They didn't think the Messiah would come from Nazareth and Galilee. They thought for sure he would be raised up from a wealthy family, not a common carpenter. 
Instead, Jesus came in to conquer sin. He was the Messiah Israel truly needed, but not the one they thought would come. Because of this difference, the Sanhedrin didn't, couldn't connect it. They could not see that Jesus would be the Messiah. So the Sanhedrin believed that Jesus' claim to be the Messiah was heresy or blasphemy. And the penalty of blasphemy was death. So the Sanhedrin are inviting Jesus to incriminate himself by admitting, or, or admitting that he has claimed that he is the Messiah. If Jesus admitted that he was the Messiah, they could have enough reason to kill him because in their minds he'd be committing blasphemy. He'd be claiming to be God. And they believed that Jesus was a normal Jew that would be claiming to be God and thus be committing, he'd be sinning in their eyes. So in all three trials, but especially the morning one, the Sanhedrin are trying to get Jesus to admit that he has claimed to be the Messiah or prove that he has claimed to be the Messiah. Verse 67, they point blank ask Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? If Jesus answers yes, they can kill Jesus because he would be, in their minds, committing heresy. If he answers no, they can delegitimize his entire three and a half year ministry, disband all of his followers. Sanhedrin could tell all the Jews that Jesus was a liar, that he wasn't the Messiah, that there had been a mistake. They've pretty much put Jesus in between a rock and a hard place, but they've forgotten. They've tried similar tactics before and they haven't got Jesus. But Jesus here takes a different approach. Jesus responds, if I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you won't answer. Jesus is telling them no matter what he says or if he tries to interact with them, they won't believe him or answer him. Jesus is pretty much responding in a way of knowing that any answer or question he gives to Sanhedrin, they won't truly hear it. They've made up their minds long ago. They've been plotting for a long time to try to get rid of Jesus. They're putting together a kangaroo court, a sad excuse of justice to put on a good show so they can kill Jesus. Think about the fact that at this point, the Sanhedrin is so full of rage and hatred for Jesus. There is nothing that can be said by Jesus or anyone to change their minds or change the course that they are going to try to kill him. They're going to figure out a way to cheat and lie their way to killing Jesus. They've tried tricking Jesus many times. They've paid off one of Jesus' disciples. They brought forward false witnesses to lie. They violated the law by holding nighttime trials. Not to mention hatred, murder. They, they violated everything. These were the head religious leaders of the Jews. These were the men that were supposed to hold the people to God's law. These were the men that were supposed to keep themselves pure so they could lead the people towards God. But they were so consumed with hatred that they sought to murder Jesus. My question for us today. In your relationship with Christ, have you gotten off course? Have you allowed yourself to drift from doing what is right before the Lord? Have you gotten to the point that you are no longer hanging on to every word you read from Scripture or every nudge from the Holy Spirit? Whether it is for you a direct rebellion mindset or you've just reached complacency in your walk with God. 
Are you floating through life, not fighting the current so as to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to God? Past two days, I finally had the opportunity to go fishing out on the Snake River with my brother-in-law and nephew. I've been waiting to go fishing. It's been calling my name. What I didn't know is that there is a crazy strong current in the snake. Did not realize that. As we were fishing, if we didn't keep a good speed up on our boat, next thing we knew, the current had moved us a ways down the river from our fishing spot. Unless we were anchored, if we wanted to keep our spot, we had to run the motor to fight the current. Are we as believers having that mindset? Are we fighting the current so as to keep ourselves in line with God? Are we fighting to make sure that we haven't drifted from our relationship with God? I think about the Sanhedrin. They at one point had a heart of upholding the law handed down by Moses from God. But they had let their pride, selfishness, and sin pull them away from honoring God. They had drifted from living a life that was in line with God. They'd gotten so off course, they missed the Messiah, the Savior standing right in front of them. They'd missed that they, what they had been waiting for and what they needed because they were so consumed with being right. They'd gotten so off course, they got to the point of directly violating the very Mosaic law that they were trying to uphold by hating and murdering Jesus. You see, the need for all believers is to have a relationship with God, be in a state that we are so committed and in tune with him. We can't reach a point in our relationship that we are no longer listening or caring about God's directions in our life. We must live in a way that we are hanging on every word we read from scripture and every nudge the Holy Spirit places in our life. That we are holding ourselves tightly to God so we don't drift. Why? Why? Because when we either rebel against him or we just reach complacency in our walk with him, that is when we really start drifting from him. Friends, we have to live in a way that we're not losing focus of our walk with Christ. We are being diligent about keeping ourselves living in a way that is pure and holy. We cannot let ourselves drift in any way. We cannot miss our Savior standing right in front of us. Now back in our text in verse 69, if you want to look back at your Bibles, Jesus tells them the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power. Now the idea of Son of Man is another way of saying Son of God. Instead of answering the Sanhedrin directly, Jesus is making the connection that he is the Son of Man, the Son of God. Jesus is explaining that he will be seated at the right hand of God's power. That just as the Sanhedrin is trying to judge Jesus, Jesus will judge their hearts. That upon humanity's death, they will face judgment and Jesus will be seated on the judgment seat. Friends, this is Jesus claiming to be the son of God, the Messiah. Jesus is answering their questions, but they don't understand him. They're missing it. And when Jesus mentions the idea of sitting at the right hand of God, The right hand was referencing to a spot of power. A ruler or a king would have the most trusted and powerful advisor or the heir to the throne seated at their right hand. So when Jesus returns to be with his father, 
The Father will welcome Jesus home and place him upon the seat of power at the right hand. After Jesus' statement, the Sanhedrin asked Jesus if he is the Son of God. They've heard Jesus mention the Son of Man, Son of God. So now they rephrase their question. Now they're asking if Jesus is the Son of God. In the ESV, Jesus' response is interesting. He responds by saying, you've said that I am. The NASB translation, the translators have it that Jesus says, you've said correctly that I am. Most commentators take Jesus' reply here as not a direct admittance that he is the Son of God, but he's not denying it. Jesus effectively saying, you have said it, not I, but now that you have said it, I'm not going to deny it. Jesus sees no actual need to admit that he is the Son of God. He did that in John 17, 1 through 5, which is the first part of what is known as the high priestly prayer. If you look up the screen, I'm going to read this for you. This, this is a great example of what we see here. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. 17, 1 through 5 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's pretty straightforward there. We see it. Before the Sanhedrin, they did not have open hearts or minds. Jesus sees no need to give them any sort of answer. He sees no need to admit it himself. He lets them say it and doesn't deny it. He knows he must go to the cross, as he stated before. He knows that no matter what he says, they won't believe him. But we need to see this response from Jesus as a foundation for the fact that he is the son of God. He is the Messiah. This is the turning point. This is the moment that shapes everything going forward. But we need to understand it was in the Sanhedrin's mindset that Jesus' denial was enough to convict Jesus of blasphemy and thus sentence him to death. We know that the religious leaders didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. They just wanted to get rid of him. As you talked out before, the Jewish law, it was blasphemy or sinful against God to claim to be the son of God. So the Jewish leaders are saying that the fact that Jesus is being referenced and he's claimed to be the son of God, but referenced to be the Messiah by his disciples and the crowds following him, and that he hasn't denied it, is qualified as him sinning against God. That is why the Sanhedrin didn't need to hear anything else from Jesus in verse 71. Jesus' lack of denial was enough for them. It was all they needed to hear and know. In their minds, Jesus was guilty and deserved to die. The Jewish leaders believe that Jesus cannot be the Messiah, so they believe, so they believe a simple carpenter is letting others claim and is in fact claiming to be the Son of God. With Jesus' reply, the Sanhedrin feels that they have enough evidence to convict him. They feel that Jesus' lack of denial is enough. However, due to the Rome ruling Israel at the time, 
Roman made it illegal for the Sanhedrin to carry out capital punishment. So that is why next week, Pastor Brenton will walk us through Jesus' trial before Rome. The Sanhedrin had to take Jesus before Rome so as to convince Rome to kill him. So friends, this is an interesting text. This text shows us that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. It shows us what he went through leading up to being convicted and taking away to Rome to be killed. So I ask you, how do we apply this text? If Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, what do we do with that? I think the main application that we must understand is that Jesus being the Son of God, the Messiah, results in one huge thing for us. It offers us salvation. Jesus being the Son of God means that he is one with God means that Jesus was sent from, the, from God the Father to earth. He was born of a virgin girl. He was raised as a human boy, but he was perfect without sin. For three and a half years in his adult life, Jesus went and proclaimed that salvation had come, that he was the Messiah. We know that the Father sent him he is the Messiah and Jesus has an incredible work. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, you know this text, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is, is, is the point of Jesus. That is the reason that he was sent from the Father to offer us salvation. That through him, his connection to the Father, being that he is sinless, being that he is the Messiah, offers us salvation. Friends, you see, without Jesus, without his death on the cross, we'd have to die instead. But the fact is that we couldn't die and we can't pay for our sins ourselves. Only someone that is sinless can pay for our sins. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of, of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 3.23 builds on that when it says, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So because we've all sinned, the payment for our sin is spiritual death. Because we as humans cannot pay for our own sins, because we are, we are with sin, we need Jesus. Jesus steps in, becomes the replacement for us. He takes on our sins, pays for them with his death on the cross so that we can be right with God. We couldn't do this on our own. We need Jesus. 1 John 2, 2 says it like this. He is propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is a big theological word for atonement or replacement. Jesus is the son of God, he's also sinless. He was sent from the father in heaven down to earth to step in as our replacement. As our replacement, Jesus takes on our sins and dies in our place. He becomes sin for us. He becomes our payment for sin. Thus, we don't pay it ourselves. He atones and pays for our sins because we cannot. But because Jesus is the son of God, his payment sticks. His payment and his replacement was enough. His sinless life and the, and the fact that he is the son of God allowed him to fully and completely pay for our sins. And thus, Jesus can turn around and offer salvation 
freedom and hope from sin because of his death. We are saved because of Jesus' death. That is why Jesus didn't fight the Sanhedrin. That is why he didn't push back. That is why he stayed silent and didn't deny the claim. Because he knew he needed to die so as to offer salvation. As well as because he is the son of God, the Messiah. So I ask you today, what are you going to do with Jesus? I stand here today and as scripture makes it clear, tell you that Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah. And he is offering you salvation through him. He's inviting you to give your life to him and he will give you freedom from the penalty of sin. He asks that we do as Romans 10, 9 says, confess with our mouth, believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and that, he, and that he's raised from the dead and we will be saved. That was the Andrew translation, by the way. For those who are here who have done that, do you live a life that is free of sin? Do you live a life that you are not clutching sin still? Have you given it, repented, and run to Jesus? Or are you trying to run back and pick up the sin in your life and still heap it on your shoulders? Are you, can you not let your sin go? Are you trying to go through life still carrying the heavy weight of your sin with you? Have you casted it off at the feet of Jesus? Friends, Jesus has given up everything for us to be saved. Let us live a life that is worthy of what Jesus did on the cross. Let us cast off all sin that entangles us. Let us live in a way that everything we do, say, and think honors and glorifies God. For those who are here today that have yet to accept Jesus, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. You see, it is our job to ask the same question as the Sanhedrin asked. Do we believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah? Do we believe that he is our Savior? That his payment for our sins on the cross was enough? Do we believe that? What are we going to do with that? We have to decide. You see, now that we've read this text, now that you know who Jesus is, we have to give a response. Do we affirm that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah? Or do we not believe it? There's a popular quote from C.S. Lewis where he said that Jesus is either a liar, lord, or lunatic. Meaning that we have to determine that if we believe that, do we believe that Jesus lied about being the son of God? Or was he the son of God like he said? Or was he just a crazy man? That is what we have to decide. I firmly believe that Jesus is exactly in everything he said he was. But do we all? Now, if you're here today and you're sitting there agreeing that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is the son of God, the Messiah, our savior, but you've yet to ask Jesus to be your Lord and savior. You've yet to turn from your sin and give it to Jesus. You've yet to give your life to him. And I challenge you not to wait. He's calling you home. He's calling you to give your life to him. He's offering you free gift of salvation, freedom. Because we need him. We cannot do life on our own. We cannot atone for our sins on our own. We need Jesus. Church, may we live in a way that our life is lived to honor and glorify the Son of God, the Messiah, our Savior, that died for us. 
May we live in a way that we affirm with everything we have that Jesus is everything he said he was. That his death and sacrifice was enough. May we turn around and, and push off sin, cast it off, turn and run to Jesus. Friends, if you have yet to do that, I challenge you, come and talk to one of us staff members. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to process what does it mean to run from sin and run to Jesus? What does it mean to be saved? We'd love to talk with you about that. But I challenge us that his death and sacrifice were and it is enough. I challenge us and call us to be thankful that he is our Messiah. He is our Savior. He is the Son of God. That our hope future lies in him, that we are saved because of him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for giving him up for us, that through him that we are saved. Father, we love you and we thank you we thank you for every, everything you've done for us. Father, may we live a life that affirms with everything we have that your son, Jesus, is the Messiah, is the son of God. He is our savior. May we not lose sight of that. May we not forget that. Help us to hold fast to you. Help us to hold tightly to you so we don't drift in this world. Father, help us to cast off sin and to run to you with everything we have. Fathers, for, for those who know you here, convict them of what it means to live a life that affirms you and your son fully. For those who don't, Father, I, I pray that you do an incredible work in their heart. That they will come to this realization that they have to give an answer. May you call them home. May you call them to know you, to be saved. That they will not leave this place without talking to one of us staff members. We love you and we thank you. May we live a life that honors and loves you with everything we have. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.